Hello and welcome to High Heels and Heartache. I'm your host, Kendall Ann Bird. Today on the podcast, I have Jessica Sands, who is a licensed therapist, and she treats people with trauma and addiction. So we're going to be chatting about the link between trauma and addiction and why um, science has found that survivors of trauma have a higher rate of addiction than some other people. Um, I really learned a lot in my interview about both trauma and addiction, and I think it's going to be really a great one for you to hear. Um, Before we get started with that, just a couple housekeeping things. First of all, High Heels and Heartache has been downloaded in 20 different countries, which is so awesome. Thank you so much. Everybody for listening, I'm so honored to be a part of your recovery. And if you have an idea for an episode, please feel free to find me on social media and send me an email um, because I really want to give you the things that you need. Secondly, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So we're going to be having two different podcast episodes this month, this one that you're listening to. And then I chat with Dr. Amelia Kelly about the effects of trauma on the body. Um, So keep an eye out for that one. Lastly, I just wanted to say to all of my survivors of sexual violence, attempted sexual violence, rape, sexual abuse, molestation, Um, Right now in the American political climate, you're probably being kind of inundated with things that would bring back some memories and feelings and flashbacks of your trauma. Um, So I wanted just to tell you to please make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Do whatever it takes that you know works for you to make yourself feel better. Maybe it's an extra trip to the therapist's office. Um, If you haven't gone to therapy before, but you're feeling upset, this might be the time to start. Um, If exercise makes you feel better, maybe an extra mile on your run or um, an extra yoga practice. I'm starting to meditate. (laughs) Um, So that would be something that would help or speaking to a friend or family member that you love and that supports you. Um, would also be something that you could do. But please just make sure that you're taking care of yourself because I know that emotions are running high right now and everything feels very raw to those of us who have survived some kind of sexual violence and we need to take care of us right now. Um, And also, I want you to know that you are not alone. Um, Just hearing my voice, I'm with you. You are not alone in your trauma. Um, I just wanted to to say that to anyone out there who might need to hear it. Okay, coming up, I have Jessica Sands, and we're going to be talking about the link between trauma and addiction. I'm back with Jessica Sands. Thanks so much for being here, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Well, Jessica, your credentials are fabulous. You are a licensed therapist, a licensed addiction therapist, and an EMDR consultant, which you told me before is pretty hard to get. So good job. Well, thank you. I was Uh, like for just the whole alphabet behind my name. (laughs) That's a great idea. (laughs) So with all of those different licensures, you provide 
EMDR, brain spotting and substance abuse therapy at Aspen Ridge Recovery and in your own private practice. You also recently started a neurofeedback business, which is absolutely so interesting. I need to know more about that. Uh, You specialize in complex trauma, dissociative disorders, and chemical addiction. One thing that I really love about you is you are a trauma survivor yourself, and you're very open about how your own therapy at different points of your life has really opened you up to being able to relate to your clients, and that makes you even better at helping them. Um, so that's just wonderful that you share that with us. I, I love it. Um, and one another thing you said that I, I just love is that you believe that every person's journey is unique and that you really admire all of your clients that come to see you and you look forward to the, for the opportunity to work with them in the future. I think that that's, that's so fabulous. And we are just so lucky to have you on the podcast today. So again, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jessica, for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. So you're here today because you know a lot about how trauma and addiction are linked. Um, because what studies have found is people who have been traumatized tend to have a higher incidence of substance abuse problems. So the first question I feel like we need to address is, how do you know if you've experienced trauma? I think that's a great question because so many so many people downplay what their experience has been. So they don't consider something they've gone through as traumatic. So even defining trauma can be a little bit difficult, but I think you can wrap it up by saying trauma is perception. And so if you believe something that you've experienced is traumatic, it's traumatic. Um, If you want to look at actually defining trauma, we can define it in a lot of ways. Like if you just Googled trauma, you would get so many different things that pop up, so many different definitions. But one of the ones that um, I'm going to go ahead and read from the American Psychological Association is that trauma is an emotional response to a terrible event. Uh, Immediately after the event, shock and denial are typical. Longer term reactions are, they can include unpredictable emotions, flashbacks, strained relationships, physical symptoms like headaches or nausea. And while the feelings are normal, some people have a really difficult time moving on with their lives. So essentially an event that really, really sucks that you experience that you perceive as traumatic and you have a hard time moving past it. That's kind of how I would really succinctly summarize trauma just in general. And when we're talking about a trauma in a relationship, so that could be a variety of things such as verbal abuse, someone that is constantly screaming at you or calling you names. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So when a lot of people think about trauma, if if you categorize them into big T and little t, so big T trauma is what most people think about, you know, combat veterans coming back from war. That's how PTSD, the actual diagnosis, that's how that was founded and created. So when people think about just the word trauma, they think about natural disaster. They think about uh, an actual physical or sexual assault. They think about stuff like that. Well, little t trauma is just as pervasive and if not even more damaging because people don't give that credit. So verbal abuse, right? If your significant other is 
just beating you down verbally over and over and over again. It's essentially the, it's being bullied by somebody in here in a relationship with, and obviously that sucks. It's also trauma. Your brain doesn't necessarily decipher the difference between those two. You might experience different actual symptoms from a big T versus a little T. But if you think about somebody being battered verbally in their relationship, their self-esteem is going to go way, way down. The, the words that they tell themselves, like, I'm not good enough, that, that shows up really pervasively and intrusively and affects the quality of their life. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so we can say for the context of, of our conversation, your trauma might be you were in a relationship where there was violence, Um, But maybe you were in a relationship where there wasn't necessarily physical violence, but that does not mean that you haven't experienced trauma from any kind of verbal or emotional abuse that has taken place to you. Yeah. I mean, women or men, women or men that need permission to go to the grocery store because they're afraid of what their spouse is going to respond with. Uh, it's it's perception, kind of like I mentioned. So if you perceive that, if, if you're living in fear, that's absolutely trauma. So when you're saying perceived, like sort of like if you feel in your gut that something bad has happened to you, something bad has probably happened to you. Absolutely. And I would even argue the point saying something bad has happened to you. Because if you have, if you have a physiological symptom in your gut saying something bad happened, this wasn't right then it wasn't right. That's your instinct. That's, that's you listening to your body saying, no, this wasn't right. This was traumatic. And it's your experience. Nobody else can tell you that your experience is invalid. And I think that that's an important point to make when we talk about those of us who have survived domestic violence, because, um, a lot of us have kept it secret for so long that you, you sort of learn to like, make the trauma into something very small. Like it's really not that bad. That's what what I used to always tell myself. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. Even though I was being traumatized, I was still telling myself it's not that bad. And I think that that's so important for people to hear you say that of, you know, if you perceive that there was trauma inflicted upon you, there was. Absolutely. And, And anybody who says it's not that bad, Honestly, they're, they're trying to normalize an experience that they probably didn't feel like they had any control over, which makes total sense. How can you survive a situation if you recognize how horrible it is, but you can't get out of it, especially with domestic violence survivors? If you're in a dangerous relationship, you can identify that it's traumatic, but when you recognize you have no control, that's, that's almost heartbreaking, right? And so that's a harder thing to deal with rather than, okay, this is normal until you get out of it and you can really see, okay, no, it wasn't. This was absolutely traumatic and you can start that healing process. Yeah. I think that that's a really important point. Okay. So can you, one thing that you have a lot of knowledge about is the brain. So can you teach us a little bit about brain basics? So we get an idea of what parts of our brain are involved when we are traumatized by something. Yeah, I, I love brain stuff. So if I start getting too much in detail and it gets confusing, just tell me. I'll be like, um, nerd alert. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. Like, 
yep, that's me. <laughs> uh, so Paul McLean is a, a physician and a, a neuroscientist back in the 60s. He came up with what I think is a really great example to give in this scenario. Uh, the tri- It's called the triune brain. So it's representative of three parts of our brain. So reptilian, mammalian, and human brain. So human brains develop from the bottom up and from the back to the front. Okay, hold on. Let's think of that one more time. I just need to get a visual. Bottom up, back to front. Okay. Yeah. So if you think bottom up, that's your brainstem and a part of your brain called their cerebellum. Think about an infant, right? What can they do? They can eat, sleep, poop, and cry, and they have a startle response, right? If you kind of like swing a kiddo back and forth and they weren't expecting it, you see that startle response. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. So what you can do with your reptilian brain, that's that's survival, right? Breathing, swallowing, heartbeat, startle. When you when the brain kind of develops a little bit more, the the mammal brain, so only mammals possess this, that is the emotional brain. So it's also called the limbic system. There's lots of different names for it, but limbic system is kind of what I refer to it as because that is where we have emotion and learning and relationship and nurturing. This is where attachment shows up. And this part of the brain is really, really important because this is what, when you're in a survival situation and you need to respond, this is the part of your brain that dumps out all the hormones. So two kind of important parts, and I won't get technical, but they're called the hypothalamus and the amygdala. So the amygdala in that emotional part of your brain, it's kind of like our fear center. So that's like Bessel van der Kolk says it's a gatekeeper. So any information coming in has to go through that and that assesses whether it's a danger or not. So I'll give you kind of an example. If you are, if you're driving on the highway and you're coming up over a hill and you come up over the hill, you're going about 65 and traffic is at a dead stop a thousand feet in front of you. You have an oh shit moment. (laughs) That is like a perfect example of your amygdala saying, oh shit, we need to do something right now. And it happens in a matter of milliseconds. So your stomach drops, your hands tighten, your heartbeat increases, and you slam on the brakes. So that's a survival response. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and then so the hypothalamus is the second part in that. So the, the fear center says, warning, caution, danger. Hypothalamus starts dumping out adrenaline and cortisol and all the stuff that you need for fight or flight. So that's the thing that's given you like, um, like the, the power that you need to solve whatever problem the gatekeeper has now alerted you of. Yeah, absolutely. And it has, has everything to do with survival. And so what your brain kind of does, the human part actually shuts down because that's, you don't need to do math or plan out the next 10 years of your life in order to slam on the brakes. Like you don't need that part. So it kind of goes offline. So what's incorporated in going offline is also language. Like, why do I need to talk to you when I'm slamming on the brakes? I just need to do that action, get us safe. And then that stuff can start coming back online. Oh, that makes sense. Because like, if I think about it, I've heard before, like people that are in shock, can't really express the way they're feeling or what has happened to them. Right. So they are, they're experiencing this trauma response and the part of the brain that houses language, that houses long-term memory, that houses um, 
rational and intellectual executive functioning, you really, you don't need it. And evolutionarily speaking, if you're being chased by a tiger, I'm not going to do a math problem, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you my name. I don't need to tell you any of those things. I'm being chased by a tiger. Yeah. Like, you might yell run to your friends, but. <laughs> yeah. Like that word, totally appropriate. <laughs> so this, this emotional part of the brain, the reason it's so important in addiction as well is that this is where habit and memory get housed. And so if you have a memory that has a positive association experience with it, that's where this shows up. So after kind of after the emotional brain, the human brain develops, and that's another name for it's the neocortex. Okay. And like I mentioned, that's got rational, intellectual, executive functioning, conscious thought, it's our, it's our language center. It's our verbal expression. You know, we have planning and logic and will self-awareness. So that part of our brain is, uh, it's called a human brain because it's unique only to humans. And so that's how we have the complex language that we do. Hmm. So those kind of three areas of the brain are, that's kind of brain basics just to kind of give you a heads up. The limbic system tends to be where trauma gets stuck. Oh. So that is where kind of like I mentioned when, when you're in survival mode and that, that limbic system gets activated, traumatic memory doesn't get stored the same way long-term memory does. It gets stored in sensory fragmented experiences. So think of it, think of it like a dream. There's no beginning, there's no end, there's only a middle, and you know the backstory somehow, and it doesn't feel good. So a certain song or a certain smell or a neighborhood, noticing a, a physical sensation in some way, shape, or form brings you back to a specific memory or instance with something or someone that was traumatic. So it's kind of like activating that limbic system back up. Absolutely. Yeah. Because that's where that sort of like memory lives. Yes. And and like I said, it's, it's fragmented memory. And so the, the tricky part about trauma is that this human part of our brain with language wants to go back and understand all this stuff that happened, but then when it actually gets activated and it takes over, the human part of the brain shuts down. So we want to understand why, why, why. But then when it happens, we can't ask that question because it's not really, it it doesn't show up in that way because that part of our brain shuts down. And And it's hard to express sort of those memories and feelings and why that scent makes you remember this weird thing. Right. And so a lot of people that understand PTSD have heard flashbacks and I'm, I'm sure I didn't come up with this term, but I tell it to my clients all the time. I identify feelbacks. So there might be a moment where you're sitting at work and all of a sudden you're overwhelmed and overcome with fear and you have no idea where the hell that came from. And there's a a pit in your stomach and your heart's starting to race and you have no idea where that came from. Well, flashbacks are unpredictable, right? I, I equivalent that to feelbacks. So it's your body going through that experience, depending on how that memory is stored. Which is so interesting that you say that because um, <clears throat> during one of the times that my abuser assaulted me, before he physically put his hands on me, he 
picked up a chair and threw it on a desk. And for a long time, loud noises would bring out a physical reaction in me. And now it totally makes sense because that was in my limbic system and that's what would activate it. And I would sweat and I would, like, I couldn't control my sweating. I couldn't catch my breath. My heart was racing. And I was just like, why is this like cognitively? I could tell myself, okay, Kendall Ann, you're in a place where you are safe. A loud noise isn't going to hurt you, but I couldn't control my body's reaction to it. So that totally makes sense that it was stored in this place where all you're trying to do is survive. Yeah. And, and so many people, and I wonder if you had this experience too, but so many people really struggle with that because you ask that question, why? And then you start almost like beating yourself up. Like, why is this happening? Why can't I control this? What is going on here? Why am I not over this? And that's the way I felt like, I know that I'm safe now. What is the problem? Why can't I get it together? And it really wasn't until I went to see a therapist who was really knowledgeable about PTSD, who was telling me like, this is natural. It's, you know, it's not your fault. And that really helped me. But now I totally know why, because I was activating this system that I literally have no control over. Yeah. Yep. And the best, the best thing to do for, for anyone that does experience something like that, the best thing that you can do is safety, right? If, if you're not in an actual safe environment, get to a safe environment. If you are in a safe environment, just notice, okay, I'm in my body. I'm sitting in this moment and doing some grounding stuff and just breathing. And that can get you to a point where you can recognize, okay, if this is showing up in this way, I probably need to go work on it. I probably need to go find a therapist and, and start on this. Kind of like you mentioned, you weren't sure why it was happening. And then you had an understanding and then worked through it. And then when it would happen, I would think like, okay, this is my body's natural response. I understand right now my heart is beating very fast. It's hard for me to catch my breath. I'm sweating profusely, which is embarrassing, <laughs> uh, but I cannot control this. And and just like you said, grounding, like I would do exactly what you're talking about. I would focus on, okay, I'm, I'm able to breathe right now. I would look around like, oh yes, I could get out of that door. Yeah. And then suddenly I, I would feel my body kind of easing up on me, so to speak. Yeah. And one, I think one really, really, really important thing to just know and remind yourself if that's an experience that you have is this is going to end like this feeling of fear of being overwhelmed of sweating profusely. (laughs) This this is going to go away. This is going to change. This is going to end. So is that how the brain, is that how the brain is changed after trauma? So after trauma, I, I think of it like this way. If you, if you've experienced complex trauma is persistent over time. So it's more than one event. So I think about something like there's no such thing as simple PTSD, but there for the purposes of describing this, let's say you get into a car accident and you've done trauma work way before that you get into this car accident and you can't get into a car again. If you go into a therapist, you can work on the car accident and it doesn't open up a whole slew of other things. But if you've experienced complex trauma, you've got, you've got other things that are not helping you heal from one specific event. And so if you've got a, a traumatized brain that has experienced 
persistent and consistent traumatizing situations. Like someone, like your intimate partner. Yes. Hitting you, screaming at you, punching you, strangling, all all of those things. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. you're not safe going home. Your basic needs are not met because physical safety is not a guarantee. So that kind of a brain is always on alert. So that's called hypervigilance. When you are always on alert, bringing down, uh, bringing down that anxiety doesn't actually feel safe. So complex trauma brains start to shift into, I'm in danger all the time. And it actually doesn't feel safe to feel safe. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because before when you felt safe, someone screamed and yelled in your face or smacked you or did a number of horrible things after they earned your trust and made you feel safe. It's almost like feeling safe is the enemy. Yep. So it's kind of like, it's like going out into the world and always looking for the color blue. And if you're always looking for the color blue, you are always going to find the color blue and you're not going to see yellow. That's such a, that's an amazing way to put it. So that's where, so that's where when you, when you get into doing trauma work, it's, it's working on bringing you back into your window of tolerance and getting used to the feeling of, okay, what does safe feel like? What does that feel like for you in your body? Can you sit with it for a short period of time? So like I said, complex trauma brains don't, they don't trust the feeling of safety because they didn't have a reason to. So it's, it's not by any means the fault of the survivor. It's just a learned, it's a learned thing. Like I'm not safe. So I need to stay overly activated all the time. And on the opposite end of that, not just activated, but also dissociated. So disconnected. That's another, it's it's just another form of survival. Because those are the things that kept you safe before. Absolutely. Yep. So that goes into my next question. Um, So some scientific research has said that among women with PTSD, 28% will develop some type of alcohol use disorder, which to me, I was like, that seems like a lot. So why do so many survivors of trauma um, abuse alcohol or other substances. What it, why it, why is that happening? So I actually, I was just talking to my group today. We were discussing this very topic and I view addiction and substance use and abuse. I view it as a really creative solution to a complex problem. So any sort of, any form of substance use is a form of trying to get relief or self-soothing. And that goes as far back as, you know, as early as stress happens to a kid in their lifetime. So if you compare this, if you compare somebody who has experienced trauma, who's under stress and hypervigilant with somebody who maybe has done all their work and they're no longer traumatized or somebody who hasn't necessarily experienced that level of trauma, give them both alcohol. They will both have an intoxicating effect. They will both experience that intoxicating effect but the one who experienced trauma is going to have a positive emotional experience with stress relief, with not feeling overly activated. And so it's almost like 
this great thing that was just discovered to make me not have to feel like shit. And is that, you said that's also stored in that. What part of the brain is that positive stored in? That's the the limbic system. So that's the emotional part of our brain, that mammal part. So that same place that taught us as a trauma survivor that kind of took over and remembers the bad times is now also associating feeling intoxicated with feeling relaxed and positivity. Yep. If you take away anxiety and distress and being overactive and reactive with a substance, it, the, the part about addiction that's tricky is like, it is effective. It works short term. It feels great for somebody who has not had an experience of relief from that kind of stuff. It's amazing. It's the over time and long term that tends to have the detrimental effects, but the immediacy of it, that's why it's so addictive is that it is effective. Because you get a break from always looking for the color blue. Exactly. And you're able you to see yellow. Absorbed in yellow because you're you're intoxicated and you're not stressed and you're not anxious. And there are ways to to go through the work of not feeling that long term, right? You know through through therapy that's effective, but in the in the immediate moment, that instant gratification, and that's that reward pathway in that limbic system. So when you get that instant gratification, you have a positive association with it. You also get the relief of stress. That is kind of a ingredients for addiction. Because it, it's, it's easier to feel relief that way than have to kind of stomp back through that limbic system and figure out all those fragmented memories and really face head on the thing, the trauma that you survived. Yeah. Trauma work is scary and it sucks, but coming, coming through it and getting through it to have that relief and to have it long-term and to, to not be dependent on one specific thing just to get it more so to be dependent on you because you worked through it is, is so great. And I think it kind of, when we think about a society, like if you watch TV and like someone has a bad day, like on TV, they'll be like, Oh, I need a drink. Yeah, and they come home and they drink. (laughs) Yeah, and so you're kind of almost like taught that just at at your the starting line, if something is bad, a way to make it feel better is to drink. Well, and another thing that we're really good at as a society is, oh, I had a great day. Let's celebrate and have a drink. Oh, true. Or it's Tuesday. Let's celebrate and have a drink. Like there's really kind of any any reason. Let's go out and have a drink. And if you are, I mean, if it's Taco Tuesday, like who doesn't want to have like a nice margarita or mojito with their tacos and probably, you know, you get one of those in your system and suddenly you're starting to feel the release from the trauma and it would be easy to overindulge and to be addicted to that feeling. Yeah. Cause it's, it's such a feeling of relief. Like I mentioned, I... I look at addiction as such a creative solution to such a complicated problem. Yeah. So how does substance abuse prolong a person's trauma or or even make it worse? So going off of just what we said, if you think about they get this immediate, an individual gets an immediate sense of relief 
Well, when that substance is no longer in your system, everything comes back, but it comes back a little bit more intense each time. So if you're, if you're continuously using, and, and this is, this applies to any substance, if you're continuously using and you start using to avoid feeling how you normally feel by the time it's out of your system, it keeps coming back stronger and stronger and stronger. Which would make you use more and more and more. And it would create like this vicious cycle. Yeah. That's how tolerance happens. So I, I, one analogy that I give here is if you, if you were to get a concussion, you you have a, a brain injury, you have to allow your brain to heal. Same thing with trauma. If you experience trauma, you have to allow your brain to heal. If you get a concussion, you have more of a propensity to get another concussion. If you experience trauma and you don't allow that to, to process and heal, you have more of a propensity to experience more trauma. Think of an active substance, introducing that to a brain that hasn't healed, you're not giving it its fighting chance. And so it prolongs trauma because it gives you more of a chance to become re-traumatized or continue in on that cycle where your brain's not healing. So if you get a concussion and you decide, well, I'm going to go out and play a game of football. Like, I don't really think that's a great judgment call, right? Yeah. Like you're, you're probably going to get another concussion because your brain still hasn't healed fully. So using a substance is like getting a concussion and going out and playing football again after you've experienced trauma. It, it doesn't make the first trauma go away. Correct. You're just... You're just prolonging that. Yeah. You're just then adding a couple more therapy sessions on there. <laughs> right. And then with and then with substance use, if let's say you're drinking and you get into a sticky situation and then another trauma happens, you're just adding to and stacking on. Be- and I can see that because now you you've you've been traumatized. You spend your whole life looking for the color blue. You have a, I I don't know, a bottle of wine. And now you don't look for the color blue. And because it feels good not to look for the color blue. And then you might get yourself into a situation where you would need the part of your brain that you're trying to kind of push down. Yeah. I think that's a great way to look at it. You, you need to be able to see the color blue. Maybe, maybe that's not the only thing you see all the time, but when you're using, it's kind of like you give zero shits about the color blue anymore because mm-hmm. you just want that relief. But that is the part of your brain that you need to, to make sure that you're safe. And that's um, one of the questions I was going to ask you, but we're kind of touching on it now is, is there a link between trauma survivors who are abusing substances and alcohol and new trauma. And you're, I mean, you're answering my question like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because that, that limbic system that has unfortunately served you probably a little too well, you are, you are smacking that bad boy down. So, so he's not, he's not bothering you anymore, but he's also not available to help you. Right. It's like you're, you're dulling the senses that you probably do need just to make sure that you're safe. And I think that what's important to go back to in this is like sometimes when we are recovering from trauma, it feels so emotional 
and like, we should get control of this. Like, I should not be afraid. I need to control this. And it's so important to think about like, there are things that are happening in your brain that are running the show. You are not running the show right now. So maybe you've never had a problem with drugs and alcohol before your trauma. And now you're having this huge problem with it. And it's confusing because it feels like an emotional problem, but really it's your brain that's sort of running your show. Yeah. And it's the, it's the part of your brain that is, we are really, really good at, in, in Western culture society, we're really good at pick yourself up, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, suck it up, uh, basically be strong, get through it. Right. But really the, the necessary thing in order to work through trauma is to not, I consider strength going through something horrifying, which is past trauma, right? I I find that as strength, but society defines it in a little bit of a different way. Be strong means shut up Mm -hmm. and stuff your emotions and don't cry and don't be too emotional, especially, you know, men are basically taught not to cry at all. Women are taught, don't be too emotional because that's not attractive. But if you're trying to work through a traumatic experience, those are necessary to not only come up, but to be expressed and to fully express not to shove it back down because if you shove it back down, it's there. It's still there. Yeah. That limbic system is still working overtime on you. You didn't, you can't trick that limbic system. Right. (laughs) It it knows you better than you. (laughs) So it, when you are working with people who have experienced trauma and now they are dealing with addiction, how, how do you help those people? Cause it just seems so hard. I, anybody that I see that comes in for chemical addiction or, or any, any kind of addiction, um, like this, it, this doesn't necessarily have to be alcohol. It could be gambling or sex okay. addiction or whatever. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. It could be anything like that. Anyone that comes in with any addiction symptoms at all, or they have identified, Hey, I struggle with this. I automatically just my opinion and a lot of research really backs this up. They have trauma somewhere in their past. And that's why we kind of defined it in the beginning. Maybe it's not this one event that they can point their finger to, but maybe it's, maybe it's emotional neglect. Maybe that person sitting in front of me had parents who were physically present, but absolutely emotionally absent. And that is devastating to a kid. And it's hard to point out something that isn't there. So, oh, what a good point. It's hard to point out something that isn't there. Yeah. Something like I never got my emotional needs met. If you're, let's say you're seven years old, how do you go up and say, you know, hey, mom and dad, you know, you're not really showing up for me emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can this we work on this? Yeah. <laughs> But when we, when we are adults, we have the language to put to it, but we don't want to go back to something early on. And, and certainly I've seen this in plenty of examples. Adults will defend their parents to the death, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm certainly not insulting parents out there, but I am saying parents are human and sometimes they miss it, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's just what happens. And so- Especially because their seven-year-old wasn't able to communicate- that they weren't having their emotional needs met. Yeah. Right. So because the kid doesn't communicate, 
they just, they miss it, right? There could be the greatest of intention there, but they just miss it. And so that's when, that's when negative beliefs start showing up. So that seven-year-old who, you know, the parents are emotionally absent think, well, I must not be important. So I'm not important and I'm not valued. And kids are little detectives. So they start finding evidence to back up. Well, okay, if I'm not important, I need to figure out if that's true or not. Well, again, if you're looking for the color blue, you're going to find it. If you're looking for evidence to back up, I'm not important. That's what you're looking for. And that's what you're going to find. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So when, so when I have anybody come through the door who struggles with addiction, I will, I'll absolutely go where they want to go first, which might be the actual chemical addiction. And, And of course, if they're in active addiction, that'll be the first priority. Get them, get them clean, get them safe. But beyond that, I'm looking for, all right, what do you, what do you think about yourself? Are you able to just sit with yourself in silence? Is that comfortable? Is that absolutely uncomfortable and intolerable? What are the beliefs that you have? Um, What are the words that you, I, I tell people, if you could take your internal dialogue, what you tell yourself on a daily basis, turn that into a person and put that person in the room next to you. Would you be friends with that person? Oh God, that's a hard question. Right. <laughs> for so many people, they're like, "Ugh, no, kick that person out. I'm like, okay, that's who lives in your head. Please don't ask anyone that question if they've gone bathing suit shopping that day. <laughs> because that is the worst day of everyone's life. Oh, yeah, you don't want to be friend with that self-talk on the bathing suit trying yeah. on day. So I think if you if you brought a friend with you bathing suit shopping and they were like, oh, my God, you look like a fat cow. You're not going to hang out with that friend. No. So that, that's, that's, that's a great way to say it. Would you be friends with your internal dialogue? And then that gives you, as their therapist, an idea to kind of launch forward of, all right, well, why wouldn't you be friends with that person? What's going on there? Yep. And that's when they start identifying those beliefs. So trauma, trauma gets stuck in a couple different ways. So images, kind of like we talked about flashbacks. But negative beliefs and thoughts, it also gets stuck in that way. And then the the emotional and body stuff, kind of like we talked about before, where you have that pit in your stomach and there's fear. Trauma gets stuck in all those kinds of different ways. But the one thing that people, I think, don't necessarily consider as much are the negative beliefs, the, the internal dialogue. But that is such a great indicator of when did you learn that? That's when a great that point. When did you learn the negative internal dialogue? When did it? When did that switch get flipped for you? Yeah, and for most people that struggle with addiction, they've been kind of like medicating this pain for so long that it's it's hard to pinpoint. But I will, I will always say, even if you let your mind kind of go back, tell me what sensory experience you have, like how old, how far back does this go? And it doesn't have to be a specific, because like I said, if, if that shows up in childhood, you don't have the words, you don't have the language for it, but you get this sensory experience of I'm not good enough, or I'm not seen, or I'm not important. And if that goes back early on, like I said, the language isn't there yet, but you know, something isn't right. Which could also kind of happen if you are an adult survivor of domestic violence because those words are stuck in that limbic system. 
Absolutely. And they did not start out as your words, but then it started sounding like your voice. Whoa. Can you please say that again? Because I think that that is so important. Absolutely. So anytime negative beliefs get stuck, you learn that. Any individual who struggles with it, they learned it somewhere. So it wasn't your voice to begin with. You got that message externally somewhere. But because you started internalizing it, it now sounds like your voice. But it didn't start out that way. Exactly. So Which is your partner could have told you, "Oh yeah, you look horrible in a bathing suit," and now this is what you tell yourself, or you're stupid, and now his words have become your words in your own brain. Yep. Wow. And the the hopeful part about that is that because you learned it, you can start to recognize it and replace it with something different. So if you, if you have been a survivor of a trauma and you're, you're feeling like maybe you have an addiction problem, maybe the first step is just kind of sitting with your thoughts and when those negative self-talk thoughts arise to, to change them. I think it's, it's harder to, when I, when I tell my clients to notice their negative beliefs and how their thoughts show up to ask them to change it in the moment would be like asking them to, uh, teach me trauma therapy in Chinese. Oh, that's going to be tough. Right. (laughs) It's going to be challenging. Yeah. Like Chinese, (laughs) but it's to change a thought pattern that has been around for that long overnight, it, it doesn't work that way. So I, I just simply start with, can you bring awareness to when this shows up? Can you bring awareness to how often it shows up? And can you just be aware of the effect it has on you? That's the starting point that, that I get to with clients because to ask them to change something, if they were capable of doing that, I think they would have done it already. Yeah. Cause it doesn't feel good. Right. Exactly. And so it's, it's just starting with the awareness that it exists and then you can start to kind of shift it because if you're not if you're not necessarily aware of of how how deep and how hurtful and how painful those words are you're not going to be able to shift it yet and and that's a painful part of the process too is just noticing what do you what do you tell yourself how often when did it show up and how do you how do you notice it now in your life right now so once you have a a client who okay, now they're noticing they're really not a good friend to themselves. Um, there's lots of negative self-talk and they're starting to, to kind of change that behavior. What, what's next for those people? I, so I utilize EMDR. So that's, that's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I, I really like EMDR and I really like brain spotting because those are two therapeutic modalities that get into that limbic system and do that deeper level processing. Oh, okay. Can you tell us a little more about those two? Because I'm fascinated right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love them and I can talk about them all day. Uh, so EMDR utilizes our brain's natural heal- healing 
system. So we already have it there. If, if it wasn't there, our brain wouldn't be able to heal. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's called the adaptive information processing system. And the way that EMDR accesses this is through bilateral stimulation. So activating both the right and the left side of the brain. So remember how before I, I mentioned the limbic system. So when you get overly activated, that kind of takes over. A way to try to prevent that from happening is to activate your right and left brain. And you do that through physical activation. So uh, that can be tapping, that can be eye movements, and that could be auditory. The right side of your brain controls the left side of your body and the left side of your brain controls the right. They're kind of like crisscross. So if I'm activating, if I'm holding two little buzzers in each hand and one vibrates on the right and then it vibrates on the left, I'm keeping both of my right and left lobe online. And the hope behind doing that is to keep your limbic system from taking over. But it also accesses your limbic system in a specific way that allows you to process that trauma. Oh, that is fascinating. That is really cool. So what's brain spotting? Brain spotting is a therapeutic modality that it identifies and processes and releases core neurophysiological sources of emotional and body pain, trauma, dissociation, lots of different symptoms. So a brain spot is an eye position that's related to emotional activation of a, of a traumatic event or an emotionally charged issue within the brain. So the way that I kind of give this analogy is if you, if you got into a car accident and you're in, and you were in the driver's seat, let's say you get uh, T-boned or something. I hope that's not activating for anybody listening, but let's say you get T-boned right before that car hits your eyes move to a specific position that see the car coming and you know, you can't do anything about it. And then boom, you have, you've experienced a pretty significant trauma. So brain spotting, if we were to work on a specific car accident, I would want to find that spot that is most activating and have you sit on that spot while your body does this processing. And you've got bilateral stimulation, kind of like I mentioned, through auditory. So you're listening back and forth to the auditory while your eye is focused on a specific spot to kind of allow that processing to continue. Wow. The, the brain is amazing. It truly is. And, and David Grand is the one who kind of discovered brain spotting and he was actually doing a modified protocol of EMDR while he, that's kind of how he discovered brain spotting. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to, to note here while we're talking about trauma and addiction, that both trauma and addiction, you, you can recover. You, you, can, you, you can be okay from these things. These things aren't going to be the way you have to live for the rest of your life. And you've, you've brought up just two different ways you know, that, that you can work on those with the EMDR and the brain spotting. It, it's, it's fascinating to me that the brain, it sort of feels like the brain does want to heal itself. It really does. And it, and it knows how, but we, we tend to get in the way, not, not intentionally. Right. But we tend to get in the way with, well, I don't, I don't want to feel this right now. I need to avoid it and go do something else because it's scary. Like working through this stuff is scary. It really is, but it's, it's worth it. 
Absolutely. Well, Jessica, I have to tell you, I have learned so much today. I feel like I've definitely gotten my nerdiness on <laughs> for the day. And I have learned so much about... I can make you feel more like a nerd. I think I've succeeded. I love it. Uh, you know, I've learned so much about the brain and the limbic system and, you know, why that link between trauma and addiction it does exist. But I feel like the most important thing I learned today was it's... It doesn't have to stay with you forever. There, there are people like you, Jessica, who are out there and really there to help us survivors of domestic violence, whether we're just struggling with trauma or, you know, struggling with trauma and then addiction kind of piled on top of that to help us get back to being the kind of friend we would want to be to ourselves. Yeah. So a great relationship. <laughs> yeah. So thank you again, Jessica. I really appreciate it. And you are just fabulous and you've taught us so much today. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was awesome. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Jessica Sands for being my guest on the podcast today. I learned so much about trauma and the brain and why people who have been traumatized are more likely to have an addiction. Um, If you would like more information on anything that we discussed today about the link between trauma and addiction or EMDR or brain spotting, there are links in the show notes. Again, I just wanted to remind you that if you are feeling activated by the current events that are going on, please make sure that you participate in some kind of self-care, reaching out to someone that you can speak to, or taking some time to yourself. And if you are in an unsafe relationship, please dial the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That number is one 800 799-7233. Again, that number is 1-800-799-SAFE.